0: If you have a copy of the Scriptures, I'm going to say a sentence right now that you have been waiting for, I think. Open to Romans chapter 8. We have made it. You've been longing for this as I have. Romans chapter 8. And I would like to read with you the first 17 verses. Romans chapter 8, starting verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. "...who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God." For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Haba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Amen, amen. and Amen. Would you bow with me? Oh, Father, just reading this passage gives us such hope. For we are hopeless without it. We are hopeless without this Christ. We are hopeless without His victory. We are hopeless without His cross. We are hopeless without His resurrection. We are hopeless without His Spirit. Oh, but with this Christ and with this cross... And with his resurrection and with his spirit, we have all hope. We are indeed more than conquerors through him that loved us so. Oh, Father, would you drive us and compel us to a deep and satisfying worship of Christ this morning by what we hear in these familiar words. Change us, Lord, for we need change. Make us hopeful, for we are too often weary. And make us to see the grandness of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. In my closet at home, I have a a bag of letters. It is a bag of letters that most people would not be particularly interested in, They're a set of letters and cards that I have kept for over 30 years now, and they are tucked away in my closet in a safe place. They are a treasure to me. They are a record of the correspondence that Regine and I shared in the 13 months from the time we met until we married. We lived in different states when we met, and... It was a time in which you had to pay for every phone call by the minute. And so phone calls were rare, particularly after one month I got my phone bill and it was $240. And so we didn't, we didn't speak as much as we might now. Um, email did not exist. FaceTime and communication by watch were still things of Dick Tracy lore. And if you don't know who Dick Tracy is, kids, ask your mom and dad. They'll tell you. So we communicated in large part by letter and correspondence that actually went into the mail and into the mailbox. And These letters of ours chronicle the early part of our relationship together. And they are a treasure to me. Unlike like my letters from Marie Jean, you undoubtedly have some favorite or treasured letters as well. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, undoubtedly you have some favorite portion of Scripture. And for many of you, that, that book is the book of Romans. And if the book of Romans is your favorite book, then chapter 8 is almost certainly your favorite chapter in that book. John Piper has said that this is the greatest chapter in the greatest letter in the greatest book ever written. Others have also noted the significance of this chapter. Says Ray Ortland Jr., here in Romans 8, there is refreshment enough for dry and thirsty believers. Says a leader from another generation, if the Bible was a ring... And the book of Romans, its precious stone, chapter 8, would be the sparkling point of the jewel. Says one commentator, "...here the apostle is swept along in a wave of spiritual exaltation that begins with God's provision of the Spirit for victory over the old man, breaks through the sufferings that mark our present existence, and crests with a doxology of praise to the unfathomable love of God revealed in Christ Jesus." Nowhere in the annals of sacred literature do we find anything to match the power and beauty of this remarkable paean of praise. Says James Boyce. This wonderful chapter sets forth the gospel and plan of salvation, the life of freedom and victory, the hopelessness of the natural man and the righteousness of being born again, the indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body and the blessed hope of Christ's return, the working together of all things for our good. Every tense of the Christian life, past, present, and future, and the glorious climactic song of triumph, no separation in time or eternity from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. says one writer, The eighth of Romans has become particularly precious to me, beginning with no condemnation, ending with no separation, and in between, no defeat." This is our hope, and it is a, a climactic hope in many ways, in part because Paul has, has just finished a section that, that reads like a funeral dirge. Its tone is, is foreboding and wearying, chapter seven verses 14 to 25. But as ominous as that section is, as it is set in a minor key, the words that follow in chapter eight are an exultant praise written in a major key, ringing with hopefulness and joy. The joy begins in the opening verses with a reminder of the work of Christ for sinners. Here's Paul's theme in the first four verses that we're going to take the next couple of weeks to look at. Christ removes every aspect of condemnation for the believer in Him. Christ removes every aspect of condemnation for the believer in Him. In Him, these four verses tell us four truths about our position in Christ. These are four truths that make us hopeful for living God-honoring, sanctified lives. As we come to to Romans eight, let me just draw your attention to one thing that might not have been readily evident. In fact, it was it was of interest to me. I hadn't noted this before. But in Romans chapter eight, there is not a single imperative. There is not a single command in this chapter. This is not a chapter by which Paul tells us this is what you must do. This is a chapter in which Paul tells us what Christ has done for us. To be saved and to be sanctified does not lead us to do something. To be saved and sanctified means we must believe and think something. We don't need something to do. We need something to meditate on, something to reckon, and something to consider. We need a promise to believe, a truth to meditate on. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul provides for us in this chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The first truth that the Apostle Paul provides us in verse 1. There is no Condemnation there is no condemnation, as we come to this verse that is I trust so familiar to you, I want you to see first of all the reality of no condemnation, the reality of no condemnation. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, therefore, therefore, why does Paul say therefore well he's he's looking backward to something that he has already said and he's drawing a conclusion from what he has said. Now typically, when when Paul or the other biblical writers draw conclusions, we can just look immediately backwards to what they have just said to see what the conclusion is or uh, to see what argument they are drawing a conclusion from. And so our eyes drift back up to chapter 7 verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Therefore, it doesn't really flow from that, does it? Because Paul ends chapter 7 still with this tension of I'm doing the thing that I don't want to do and I'm not doing the thing I do want to do and, and I know in my mind that I must serve the law of God but, but my flesh is constantly pulling back to the law of sin. And what, is, what is Paul referring back to when he says therefore? On, on what basis is there no condemnation for the believer? well. Go back to chapter 7, verse 4. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter." Now, in verse 7, notice what he does. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? So starting in verse 7, he has a parenthetical thought that runs through the end of the chapter about an explanation about the law and our relationship to it and and how we battle with sin. If we take that parenthetical thought and just set it aside for just a moment, listen to to the passage as I read it, ending in verse 6. Now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That flows, doesn't it? The, the reason that there is no condemnation is that Christ has fulfilled the law, conquered sin, conquered death, and placed those of us who are believers in Him in Himself, taking us out of Adam. And in fact, if we look back to chapter 7 verse 4, we must also look even further back to chapter 6 verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul, as he comes to chapter 8, is thinking back to our position in Christ and and Christ's death and Christ's resurrection are being placed in that. But he, he goes back even further than chapter 6, even to chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and focusing even on verses 18 and following. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, so even through the one act of righteousness that is Christ's righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase. The law came in so that transgression would be exposed, so we would see our sin. But where sin increased, Paul says, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is thinking back to our position in Adam and that Christ has come and Christ has removed us out of Adam and He's placed us in Him. And because we've been placed in Him, there is no longer any guilt from the law, no judgment, no wrath, no hell, no sin, no bondage. Therefore, there is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation. What does he mean by now? He means that today, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. But He also means something else, doesn't He? He also means that prior to coming to Jesus Christ, before we were in Jesus Christ, there was condemnation. There was much condemnation. There was fullness of condemnation. But now, that has been removed From us. It's as if Paul is painting a, a before and after picture. This is what you were before Christ. This is what you were in Adam. And this now is what you are in Christ. This is your new existence. And he is emphatic. He says, There is now no condemnation, there is not a condemnation of any single kind. Condemnation has ceased to exist. It is completely removed. It does not exist in any realm, in any place. It is gone. There is nothing of condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus. That is the reality of no condemnation. Notice also the meaning of no condemnation. When Paul says, There is no condemnation. What does he mean by that? The word condemnation is is a rare word. It's only used three times in the New Testament, all by the Apostle Paul and all in this section. It is used in chapter 5, verse 16. The gift is not like that which came from the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Again, 5.16, now 5.18. So then as one, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification to all men. And so now in chapter 8, verse 1, we have the third occurrence of this word, and it is the only three times that that word appears in the New Testament. It is a word that that refers to the pronouncement of guilt. It refers to the carrying out of, of judgment against guilt. So our sin renders us culpable before God. We are guilty before God when we sin. And this condemnation is the carrying out of God's judgment against sinful sinners. Our sin renders us guilty. God carries out His wrath against that sin and guilt. And Paul says, for those who are in Christ, that condemnation, that wrath, ceases to exist. Paul has said in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But for the one who is in Christ Jesus, that death has been paid for by Christ. There is no death. The condemnation, the judgment, the wrath, the guilt is removed. We are not, in a word, penalized for our sin. But this word can can mean something more than just God's condemnation and God's wrath. It can also refer to penal servitude. So think of it this way, a penalty that produces service. So we might, we might say it's, it's akin to enslavement. It is, it is enslavement that comes to us as a result of our being in sin. So Paul is, is not just saying in verse one, there's no condemnation, the wrath is removed, but he's also saying the enslavement is removed. We not only have been declared righteous, but that because we have been declared righteous, because we are justified, we have been freed from enslavement to sin. Sin is no longer our master, and we are no longer in bondage to it. In other words, we're not only free from the penalty of sin, but we're also free from the power of sin. And this is this is repeating a theme that he's already brought up for us. And, and, and so, for instance, in chapter 6, verse 11, "...even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus." Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. In other words, you have an ability, because you are in Christ, to say no to sin. Previously, you could not say no to sin. You could not You could not engage in a righteousness that was your own. You could only say yes to sin, but now you have an ability to say no to sin. You have been freed from its power. He says the same thing in chapter 6, verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 21, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. You've been freed. In fact, that's going to set the table for what he'll say in chapter 7, verse 4. Remember what he said, 7, verse 4. We have been connected to Him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So we have been freed from sin. We're free from Adam. We are in Christ. And now we can do things that are pleasing to Him and honoring to Him. No condemnation means that both the penalty and the power of sin are removed from us there is therefore now no condemnation the reality of no condemnation is sure the meaning of no condemnation is that we are removed from condemnation's power as well as con- as well as condemnation's penalty but who are the ones who receive this lack of condemnation the recipients of no condemnation The only ones who receive the gift of no condemnation are those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a universal promise. It is an exclusive promise. There is only one means of escaping the wrath of God, and it is to be in Christ Jesus. Those in Him are free from condemnation. But all those who are not in Him are still under His condemnation and wrath. If you are not in Christ, you are under Christ's wrath. When Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's again thinking about our identity and our relationship with Christ. The the thing that he... Uh, particularly explained in the first part of chapter 6. He's thinking about our unity with Christ. He's thinking about the fact that we have been baptized into Christ, identified with Him. He's, He's thinking about the fact that we are buried with His death. He's thinking about the fact that we are raised with His resurrection. We are connected to Him as a body to the head. We are made alive in Him. He's thinking about the fact that this is our present reality. It's not something that is yet in the future. It is what we enjoy now. It will one day be fulfilled. That's what the last part of the chapter is about. In in all of its fullness, but... But even already, this is the way God thinks of us. He, he sees us as identified with Christ, connected to His righteousness, saved by His righteousness, atoned for by His righteousness, bearing all of His righteousness. He sees us and identifies us as He thinks about and identifies Christ. And because we are in Christ... And it is our position in Christ that has removed condemnation from us. This also means, listen to what Ray Ortland says, This means that God has done this and we did not. It means that we are not holding on to Christ as much as He is holding on to us. It means that God has done something for us larger than our own change of allegiance to Him. He has included us in all that the death and resurrection of Jesus are worth. So when we prove again that we are sinners as we too often do, we may also announce to ourselves that we are also in Christ Jesus as liable to condemnation as He is. Oh, friend, if you are in Christ, even when you sin, there is no more ability for God to condemn you than God could condemn Christ. You are in Him. There is no place, if this is true, for a gloomy Gus Christian... While we're concerned about wrestling against sin in this life, we are to be even more consumed and overwhelmed by his acceptance of us. Listen again to what Ray Ortland says. Verse 1 does not say, there are no sins, there are no accusations, there are no valid complaints, there are no disciplines. A Christian is not above correction. A Christian is not always right. But a Christian is never condemned under the judgment of God. The gospel does not deny the enslaving grip of sin, the the law of sin and death that we'll see in verse 2. But the gospel does deny the damning authority of sin. When you affirm your new identity in Christ, you're not playing a pretend game. You are not covering over your problems, but you are seeing yourself and your problems in a new connection in relation to all that Jesus is worth to you with His blood cleansing you and His promises securing your future. But friend, if you are not in Christ Jesus, you must also consider this reality. If you are not in Christ Jesus, then you are under his condemnation. If you are not in Christ, you are still condemned. If you are not in Christ, his wrath and his righteous anger against you have not ended. He has no saving love for you. But there is a solution for you. And it is, in a word, to be united to Christ. It is to have faith in His saving work to free you from the penalty of sin. That God looks at you and sees your sin and sees the blood of Christ paying for the penalty of that sin. But not only paying for the penalty of the sin, but also removing you from the power of sin so, so that the sin no longer has dominion over you. Faith says... I cannot save myself. I cannot change myself. But I believe that Christ not only satisfied God's anger against my sin, but that He can also redeem my sin and transform me from my sin. He can change my desires. And I believe and have faith that following Christ is better than anything else in this world. That is what it means to have faith in Christ, to trust that God was satisfied with His death and to trust that He can remove you from the power of sin so that you can do things that are pleasing to Him. And when you believe in Christ, the work of Christ is applied to you and God saves you so that you are joined to Christ so that so that you can now produce work that is fruitful for Him. That's chapter 7, verse 4. We might bear fruit for God. That's why He saves us and that's why He liberates us. And friend, if you are not in Christ, I can do nothing better this morning than to compel you and urge you and command you to trust in Christ alone as your Savior. So the believer's great hope, the believer's great confidence is that condemnation from God against him is removed. But how is that possible? How is it possible for God to remove condemnation against us? Does God just forget about the sinner's sin and and, and overlook it and say, well, he tried hard, I'll I'll just let this pass by. No. No. There is no condemnation, secondly, this is the second truth of this passage, there is no condemnation because of Christ. There is no condemnation because of Christ. I want you to see, first of all, what the removal of condemnation did. Notice verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. The freedom that Paul has in mind is a freedom from enslavement. It's the same word that he used back in chapter 6, verse 18. Being freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 22 of chapter 6, having been freed from sin, you are enslaved to God. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John chapter 8, that passage that we read as our call to worship this morning. If the sons shall set you free, you shall be free Indeed. You've been set free. And notice that, that Paul says that this is something that has already happened to you. If you are in Christ, He has set you free. Not He will set you free, but He has already set you free. It is a completed act of God for us. There has been an emancipation from the slavery of sin and the irrevocable document that declares our freedom from sin has been signed and sealed by the blood of Christ. He has set you free and notice that he says he has been set free in Christ. Now, as we read this verse, my translation says for the law of the spirit for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And there's a question about what that little phrase in Christ Jesus is supposed to explain or modify. And grammatically, it can go two directions. It can, it, it could modify it the way the New American Standard has translated it. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ. So, so there is a compelling work by the Spirit who gives life that is rooted in Christ. And that's certainly possible. But if you notice, um, there's a little mark um, there in front of the words, In Christ Jesus, that leads to a footnote. And the footnote rightly notes that it could also be translated, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And the question is, which way does it go? So Thursday afternoon, I was um, sitting in the dentist's chair and I was pondering this question. And, And pondering Romans chapter 8 is a good thing to do when you're in a dentist's chair, for it takes you to the heights and keeps you from the dregs as the dentist is working on your teeth. And so I was thinking about this phrase and pondering, what, which way does it go? Does it go with set you free or does it go with the law of the Spirit of life? And then as the dentist is working away, I thought back to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it seems to me that Paul has set up two parallel statements. There's no condemnation in Christ. There is freedom in Christ. It's, it's the negative and the positive. God has removed condemnation in Christ or by Christ, and positively, God has set you free in Christ or by Christ Jesus We are not only unified with Christ, but our union with Christ has broken our former bonds with sin and has set us free. Christ is the reason for our freedom. And notice what what he says about this freedom. He says, it has set us free from the law of sin and death. The word law here is not a reference to the Mosaic law. Because he identifies this particular law as the law that relates to sin and death. I, I think he is thinking about a, about sin and death in a similar way as he did in chapter 7, verse 21. He says, so then I, I find that the law, that evil is present in me, the law of evil or the principle of evil. He uses a similar phrase in verse 23. He says, I have been made a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And, and verse 25, With my flesh I still serve the, the law of sin. And, and he's thinking not about a law like the Mosaic law, but he's thinking about a law that compels us. A law that comes with some form of authority. And so... We've said that, that the law of sin is the fact that, that sin in some measure has authority. And sin is, sin is not um, inactive, but sin is active pushing and compelling the person to sin. Sin dictates action. Flesh doesn't just entice us to sin. Flesh pushes us to sin and manipulates us to sin. This is the controlling impulse of sin. That's what Paul's talking about here in verse 2. You have been set free from the compelling work of sin, for the compulsion of sin. The believer in Jesus Christ has been set free from that controlling power. As one commentator has said, the last word is not with sin or with death. While believers are not sinless, they have real liberation in Christ Jesus. Cuban, set free, my friend, if you're in Christ. Now, if you're thinking along about Paul's argument here, there's a natural question that arises. How can the believer... Be free from the law of sin and death. I don't have to sin. And also, as Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 7, under or enslaved to sin. How can I be free from sin and under sin at the same time? How how can I be free from sin and do what Paul says in verse 18 and 19, not not doing the thing that I want to do and doing the thing that I don't want to do. How is that possible? And these verses address the reality that the believer still um, deals with the illegal squatter called flesh living in his life. And th- th- this, this verse and this section paints a real picture of how we really live there's no photoshopped image here this is this is real life this is a portrait of all the beauty that is in life and all the harshness that is in life and so this verse talks about the fact that sometimes this section talks about the fact that we will sometimes in this life still blatantly sin we we will still find most if not all of our godly actions even tainted and and colored by sin. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Why would he say don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery unless it were possible to be subject to a yoke of slavery? In fact, that idea just permeates all of chapter 5 of Galatians. Paul says further in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. It it is Paul saying, I I still wrestle with the flesh. I still battle with the flesh. I, I have not completely overcome. Friend, there is no day in our lives when we can say, I didn't need the blood of Christ today. I made it on my own. I'm sufficient in myself. My sin reminds me that every single day I am dependent on Christ. And and just parenthetically, there's a benefit then to sin. Because when I sin, I am reminded, I am incapable, but Christ is capable. Everything that I need, Christ has supplied. And wh- where, where I am weak and I don't function in a God-honoring way, Christ has provided sufficiency. But there's, there's also a reality, even while I'm wrestling with this sin, that's Romans 7, there's also a reality that I'm being transformed and I'm being changed and, and I'm able to please God with my actions and my motives. So, so Paul says, right after saying, uh, verse 15 of First Timothy chapter 1, I am the foremost of sinners, he says, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him to eternal life. So, so even while I'm wrestling with the sin, there is resident in me an example of the work of Christ on my behalf. And and as you think about that, Paul also says in Galatians 5, Don't go back to sin. It's possible, but don't go back to sin. And at the same time, he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So even though there's a temptation to go back, the reality is God is sanctifying us. His Spirit is living within us. His Spirit is producing His fruit through us. We are being changed and transformed. And whatever our struggle with sin is, it is wholly different than the unbelievers' struggle with sin. The unbeliever may at times appear to be good. He may appear to be righteous. He may be pursuing a kind of righteousness on his own. But even if he does good, even if he teaches his children civility and even if he disciplines his children graciously, and even if he contributes to worthy causes and serves on the PTA and never curses and is always faithful to his wife and and helps every single elderly lady across the street without grumbling and complaining and never honks his horn in anger, he is still entirely unrighteous. Why? Because he has rejected Christ and all of his works are his attempt to be righteous on his own it is to blatantly shake his fist at God and say I don't need Christ and that has rendered him guilty the believer on the other hand is always working to be righteous and always fighting against sin, not on the basis of his own merit, but through the power of Christ that resides in us. So Romans 8.2 is not a contradiction of Romans 7.14. Rather, it is a complete picture of the Christian. It excludes the possibility of someone being righteous without Christ, but it also makes possible... One who has not yet been made righteous with Christ to be declared righteous on behalf of and through the work of Christ. Well, I knew this was going to happen. Um, We kind of made it through a chunk of this. Um, But I want to think with you next week yet about the law of the spirit of life and how it is that the spirit produces righteousness in us. As as, as we tie this together for just this morning, I I want you to remember one thing I said at the beginning of the message. Remember that I said this chapter has no imperatives. There are no commands here. It's a declaration of God's work on our behalf. And if God has done these things, We don't attempt to do them. They have been done for us by Jesus Christ. We don't attempt to do these things for Jesus Christ. Rather, we meditate on them, we contemplate them, we reckon them, we consider them, and we start acting as if they are true. What should we do with this message? You and I should act as if there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I find very helpful what Tim Keller has written in his book on Romans chapter 8. He writes this, The great 20th century Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. What happens... If we forget that there is now no condemnation. On the one hand, we feel far more guilt, unworthiness, and pain than we should. From this may come drivenness from a need to prove ourselves, great sensitivity to criticism defensiveness, a lack of confidence in relationships, a lack of confidence and joy in prayer and worship, and even addictive behavior which can be a reaction to a deep sense of guilt and unworthiness. On the other hand, Keller writes, we will have far less motivation to live a holy life. We have fewer resources for self-control. Christians who don't understand no condemnation only obey out of fear and duty. That is not nearly as powerful a motivation as love and gratitude. If we don't grasp the full wonder of now no condemnation, we will understand each word of the rest of chapter 8 verses 1 to 13 but completely miss the sense of it. Oh friend, remember Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from sin and death. Oh, Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for its power, its authority, its hopefulness. And would you take this word and transform us by it? Would you take this word and change our minds, change our thinking, change our hopefulness so that we might in every way rest in you, rest in our position, rest in Christ, rest in the Spirit and fight against sin. Not on the basis of the flesh, but fight against sin by the power of the Spirit, by the controlling influence of the Spirit who now resides in us. Oh, Father, would you change us by this word and make us hopeful through this word, we pray in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Amen.